Right, we are now okay. live on YouTube and it's 11 o'clock in Portugal, uh, midnight in France where we have Halizer. It's uh, 3 p.m. in California and Oregon and 7.30 in Adelaide and in Portugal as well. Hello everyone, good evening, uh, good morning and good afternoon. First of all, I have to start this debate or this talk by wishing a lot of support to everyone out in California, Washington, Oregon, by the series of extreme weather events, exactly what we'll be talking about here tonight or today. And a lot of support to all of you. But on a positive note, I also want to wish a wonderful vintage to everyone also that is going through their harvest, their, uh, their annual harvest, and I hope it's been a magical, magical time. I know all is, go all is going through that, so are you, Phil. And before we move on to the talk, let me take a moment to introduce to you Porto Protocol. We are today in a foundation. We came out as of two major events that took place in Porto in 2018 and 2019 called Climate Change Leadership Solutions for the Wine Industry. In the meantime, we became a foundation. And today, as we speak, we are a community of around 200 members. We were founded by Taylor Sport, but today we count with companies and individual members as well from every part of the world, every wine region. And we also have companies from wine producers and many others spread across the wine value chain. Now, although our focus is climate change, we talk about it from a solutions perspective and never from a problems perspective. And what we're trying to build our big quest and mission is to build a platform of climate solutions spread across the wine value chain from grape to glass. This is only possible. And the reason why we're doing this is because we believe there's no time and no need for companies or individuals to do this alone. And it makes much more sense that we do it together. And so the spirit we live by is collaborative sharing and collective action on a global scale for and within the wine industry. We cannot do this alone and this takes time to build. So we count on you not only to join us, but to share what you are doing. And this can be really an amazing movement that we have here, but we really need you. What we are here today with our climate talks, we'll be talking about extreme weather events and throughout the, the year, we'll have many other talks. And this is very much a fulfillment of the mission we, I just told you about. It's a way of having members such as the ones I'm going to introduce to you soon, interacting with each other, learning with each other and sharing with you all this knowledge that they bring in their expertise and their experience. So let me pass on to, to our panel today. I must tell you that we're really proud, first of all, because we couldn't be more timely in terms of topic that we're discussing here today. Indeed, because of what, 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 uh, in the, what the US is living at as we speak, but mostly because we bring you people, we bring you all these gentlemen, uh, Joan, that will be hosting the event, Richard, from, that is joining us from Australia, Alizer, though he's, he's joining us from Australia, but he's currently in France, and Greg and Phil that are joining us uh, from, from Oregon and California, but they bring a wealth of experience and firsthand experience as well in extreme weather events from different regions, not just the ones they're representing. Just to give you an example, for example, Phil Fries from Villafonte, 
also has vineyards in South Africa and in California, and he brings us his expertise along many other regions in the world, from the droughts in South Africa, for example, and uh, what you're experiencing right now with wildfires and heat waves and many other things in California. Greg is bringing us the experience from Oregon, not only as a scientist and as a professor, but also as a producer. So it's really interesting to see how he combines these two these two elements together, but he knows the Douro region in Portugal amazingly, and he has experience in many other regions. Richard is currently working with many vineyards that are that have suffered from from the bushfires last year in Australia. And Alizar has experienced firsthand as well these uh, these fires in his family vineyards in the Hunter Valley. Uh, that in fact is actually one of the f the first certified carbon neutral vineyard in your, uh, in in Hunter Valley, and is also climate uh, voice in his region. So I pass on to Joel, that is also an experienced professor and ex experienced climatologist. So I pass on to Joel. I'll join you at the end of the debate. I wish wish you an amazing debate, and I leave it to you. Thank you for being here very much. And thank you all out there for being here listening to us. I'll disappear now. Joel, is that to you? Thank you, Marta. Mm -hmm. uh, good, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I would like to, to start just with a very brief uh, general introdu introduction to the topic. Uh, and then we will pass uh, uh, to the, the discussion with our uh, panel today. Uh, we know that extreme weather events such as heat waves, uh, extreme droughts, floods, hailfall, uh, windstorms, late frosts, among many other extreme events, are an important threat uh, to viticulture worldwide. In fact, weather conditions govern grapevine growth, physiological development, yield, and grapeberry composition, thus affecting wine profiles. In turn, climate plays a central role in the terroir of a wine region as it strongly controls the canopy microclimate. Since grapevine cultivation is deeply dependent on weather and climate conditions, as we have already seen, new challenges uh, are predicted to arise from climate change. Even though grapevines have, as we know, also an array of survival strategies, wine style and wine typicity of a given region, recognized by consumers, are strongly connected to local terroirs, thus exacerbating the vulnerability of the whole wine sector to climate change. Despite especially heterogeneous impacts that are foreseen for in the future, we know that climate change is anticipated to strengthen the recent trends which may reshape the geographical distribution of wine regions uh, worldwide. In general, climate change uh, is then uh, perceived as an important risk for viticulture, threatening in some cases or challenging in other cases viticulture and the winemaking sector. Therefore, the adoption of timely, cost-effective and suitable adaptation strategies may significantly contribute to risk reduction, thereby decreasing the sustainability or susceptibility of the sector and enhancing its resilience under a changing climate. 
Although the potential of the different adaptation options in reducing detrimental impacts still comprises many uncertainties and demands further research, the implementation of a blend of effective measures in the vineyard that must be tuned to local terroirs and local climate change projections will definitely contribute to the future environmental and socioeconomic sustainability of the existing wine regions. For that purpose, we think that the communication channels between science, stakeholders and consumers should be improved to enhance capacity building and knowledge transfer to the wine sector and to increase the, the acceptance to necessary changes by the consumer. Uh, and this is also a very important topic that we would like to discuss today. Some of these questions will be discussed today in our panel. And uh, I think we are all thrilled to hear the opinions of our guests today. Uh, and uh, I would like to uh, start uh, highlighting that some changes have already been uh, noticed on different levels by the winemaking sector. For example, in the 2019 Pro Wine Business Report, uh, it's mentioned that viticulturists are already experiencing significant changes in their vineyards and wines. So my first, first question to Craig, Alistair, Richard and Phil in this order is, uh, are you experiencing the impacts of climate change in your vineyards and wines? And if yes, from your viewpoint, what are the most visible impacts? So I guess I'm going to go first because uh, you put me first in that list. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a, it's a very good question. I, you know, I'm a climate scientist, but I also have uh, uh, my family's vineyard to consider. And I think what's really important here is, is that as agriculturists uh, in the pursuit of growing a given crop, uh, we would never do things exactly the same year in, year out. We're constantly adapting. And so to be a really good a uh, viticulturist and then therefore a wine producer, we need to be extremely aware of what's happening in our vineyards and to be able to adapt to the changes, whether they be internal or external to that operation. Clearly, we've seen uh, changes in, in temperatures. We've seen uh, changes in heat extreme uh, uh, events. We've also seen changes in some other things that may not seem quite so, um, so problematic for example, uh, spring frost isn't quite as uh, um, um, you know, risky as it used to be in my region. And so we have to adapt to not only things that are, are on the more challenging side, but also to changes that might be a little bit to the better, uh, such as uh, less uh, frost risk. But we have to remember that in, in a warmer world, frost and winter extreme temperatures don't just go away. So we have to be able to not only adapt to these changing frequencies, but also understand that they, they potentially could be more problematic when they do occur. So, you know, from a climate science perspective, I think it's just very, very important to know that these changes uh, from a general climate perspective, temperature, uh, water resource availability, uh, and extremes, these have been going on all across the world. In every region that I've ever looked at any data, uh, um, um, we clearly are seeing these kind of changes. It's how we've adapted to them over time in our individual regions that becomes really important. So that's my point of view for right now. 
Thank you, Craig. Uh, Alice there? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I was born in 1991. So um, I'm a fifth generation grape grower and I, I grew up in vineyards and, and wineries in the Hunter Valley in Australia. And uh, all I've ever known in viticulture is a changing climate. It's all I've ever seen, to be totally honest. Um, you know, I, I hear the stories about uh, the 1970s and 1980s, and I know the history of the wines from, from that time. And I know when grapes used to be harvested and what winter used to look like and what spring used to be like through, through what my family's told me. But my entire life, I've been watching the winter shrink more and more. Uh, I've seen the vintage dates creep further and further forward. And it's not really an anomaly, anomaly to me. It's, it's just what I've always seen. Uh, the entire time I've been involved in viticulture, which uh, is something which then leads you to look further into the future and say, well, this is a trend that I've seen my entire life and where, where does it lead to? Uh, and, and it's led to, in our case, in the Hunter Valley, uh, vintage has moved forward about a month from, from where it used to be. Um, pre, uh, the, pre when I was born, pre the 1990s, uh, the vintage has become much more compressed. So we have grape varieties ripening up much closer together, which uh, can can create logistical headaches in terms of how you then process those wines and turn them into wine using limited resources. Uh, and then there's been a huge increase, particularly during the last uh, five to 10 years in, in extreme weather events, particularly in heat waves. So the way that we've seen uh, heat uh, accumulate across the growing season, but then also uh, periods of sustained uh, extreme heat, uh, often combined with uh, drying, uh, for example, 2019 leading up to the 2020 growing season was both the driest and hottest year on record uh, for Australia as a whole and for our regions. So uh, this this uh, is kind of, <laughs> uh, to answer your question, uh, that's that's my point of view uh, on, on climate change in viticulture. It's to me been my entire experience of viticulture. Thank you, Alistair. Um, Richard? Yes, look, uh, thanks uh, to Greg and Alistair. Um, the issue of compressed seasons certainly uh, applies. Um, I live and work in uh, the Adelaide Hills, which is a cooler climate area. We are tending to see slightly early bud burst, nothing quite like uh, vintage dates. Uh, for example, when I established a vineyard in the late 80s uh, in the Adelaide Hills, we were ripening Cabernet in May. Um, that vineyard's now been pulled out, but um, my local vineyards are now ripening their Cabernet in late March. So that's a huge change. The vintage dates are coming forward, as Alistair mentioned, and of course there's that issue then of warmer ripening. The reason for planting in the Adelaide Hills is for that cool climate uh, region area, um, and we're certainly seeing warmer ripening. The other aspect is extremes. Uh, for Australians to say, you know, drought is coming coming on board. Um, we are used to seeing drought situations, but some of the extremes are quite dramatic. But the other interesting aspect is we're seeing rainfall extremes as well. For example, in 2016, we had a September, which is the wettest on record, with roughly 30% of the normal annual rainfall occurring. And this is 1,100 millimetre rainfall we're talking about um, where I am at the moment. So these are big changes and require uh, awareness of what the 
forecast is not just for in in for, for uh, the future forecast, i.e., um, you know, six months ahead, uh, but more importantly, that aspect of um, you know what might just be around the corner, because we're certainly seeing streams all the way through. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, yeah, this, uh, well, it's, first of all, let me just say, this is a, a really great panel to be on and I appreciate having the, uh, the richness of this, of this group here. Um, it seems to me that, um, let me just say that it's, it's easy um, I think it's easy to say, okay, we have climate change going on and, and these are the things that are occurring. What I'm uh, trying to challenge people to do that I work with is to put some metrics um, to what's going on. And to me, one of the great metrics of the wine growing concept that we all work with is the phenological calendar and really recording dates and um, looking at those dates, and I have a feeling that I think that's something that's that's in it, it's uh, it's part of the genetic material of of Australians uh, to of viticulturists to do that. It's not so much in some other areas of the world, and um, it's a um, it's a it's a really to me a, a point that uh, I think a lot of people are going to be sorry that they haven't calibrated or, or collected that information because most of the things that we do, um, we, we talk a lot about um, adaptation. Adaptation to me is a, is, a, is, a, is a tough thing to deal with because it says that you are dealing with things that are happening or have happened to you. I think what we're about is really looking what I call over the horizon and saying, okay, with what we see and the trends that we're seeing, what can we anticipate and how can we deal with it so that we don't have, um, so adaptation is actually a, not a, a response to things, but it's an anticipation. And, um, and I'm, I'm a real big fan of, uh, as you're getting a sense here, of uh, phenological uh, data's, uh, data uh, with all kinds of events that are going on during the natural arc or the normal arc of the growing season because if you know the phenological cycle and inter, uh, interval dates, uh, then one can start to look at how those are changing. And for example, if you're gonna manage in a limited water situation, if you're gonna manage water for a most effective uh, and efficient use of that water in producing the product that you want to produce, you really need to know when to withhold and when to apply water, which has, it implies that you know what's happening. Irrespective of the, what's happening during the growing season, we need to have a master plan about how we're going to manage a vineyard in in the concept of wine growing. And um, so I'm actually uh, for the panel. I'm I'm uh, preaching to the converted or the the leaders already, but it's more for uh, individuals out there who aren't doing that. Is to is to get good records of. Um, of what's going on, and uh, and that will help people adapt and adopt uh, as we go forward. Uh, Joao, if I can jump in, I'd like to add a little bit to that. You know, um, Phil, you you and I talked quite a bit about this about the idea of what the plant is telling us. 
and, and we know that there's been earlier occurrences. We also know that some of the data is showing us that the, the interval length between one event and another, whether it be flowering to verasion or verasion to harvest, has actually been changing too. So the plant system is both shifted earlier, but also accelerated some aspects of its uh, cycle. So the, you know, here's a great question. Where we are today moving into the future, can we go from a 40 to 50 day verasion to maturity window to something that's 30 days? What does that look like? And then how do we manage that in the vineyard? I think it's a big question. Uh, you're spot on, Greg. I, it's something that's a great concern to me, um, a, a great interest, I should say. It's a, a concern as well. But one of the things that I'm concerned about is, is in, a, in a climate where we can spend a lot of time, I'm going to talk about California right now, we can spend a lot of time in a, any given day at temperatures that are over optimum for physio physiological function. And um, the hours go by anyway, but if we're not getting the physiological function and the total time from verasion to, um, to harvest maturity uh, measured on a, say a sugar standpoint is getting shorter. My question is a physiological question, can vines actually accomplish all the things they need to do to resolve in Cabernet and red Bordeaux varietals and just pick on that to resolve the tannin structure, the, the elements, what I call the elements of style of the wine. Can those actually be addressed by the plant in that period of time? And we've always in California, um, other places as well, we've dealt with the fact that we get sugar accumulation faster than we get uh, a lot of this um, full wine attribute characteristics and components. So it's, it's just, uh, to, uh, sorry, Greg, I'm kind of repeating what you're saying, but yeah, I'm concerned about how we're gonna do that and, 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 and how our wine styles and characteristics are gonna evolve. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for, for your replies and, and discussion. Uh, we know also that climate change projections now for, for the end, until the end of the, the century, based on uh, both global and regional climate models are in general agreement with the observed trends over the past decades. Uh, alterations in the spatial patterns and temporal regimes of uh, fields like temperature and precipitation uh, should be significantly uh, modified and also should modify the viticultural bioclimatic zones. In some regions, we know that climate change may bring some, benefic some benefits for viticulture, for example, due to higher fruit maturity and opening new areas for cultivation, while the impact should be detrimental in many other regions, for example, by challenging the ability uh, for adequate grapevine cultivation and wine production. On the other side, we know also that extreme weather events are more likely to occur in the future, and as a result, may have also an important impact on the sector. So uh, more from the scientific side, uh, my question to Greg is if uh, you can just very briefly, because this is a very complex uh, topic, but if you could uh, very briefly comment on the climate change projections and the likely impacts on, uh, on different wine regions, uh, at least some examples, 
and how vulnerable is viticulture to weather extremes? Um, you know, so, uh, well, thank you for the question, uh, Joao. I, um, I think I, I, I've been kind of mulling some of this around in my mind for a long time. And I go back to when I first started um, really becoming a climate scientist and looking at some of the aspects of how we were observing the environment and then also modeling it through projections. And some of the early work that I did uh, back in the early 1990s uh, doing this uh, showed that we really needed to be concerned about the observation showing us that temperatures were, were clearly changing as we were coming out of the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. But even the very early climate models that we were doing, most of you um, here on the panel uh, are aware of this, but our early models were crude in both time and space. They covered months to seasonal cycles and they covered large areas of the earth. And so when we were running these models, we were getting output that was covering a, you know, a 200 or 300 square mile area instead of something that was more useful. But what I find so amazing about those early models, even though they were not as developed as we have today, they were really pretty accurate to what we have experienced by the 2020s. I remember we, we had some model output that we were running in the early 90s and we had the 2020 period projected. And the data really is, is not far off of what those early models were showing us. So fast forward that to today, our models now can operate uh, on nearly daily time steps, depending on how you wanna run them. Uh, they're also operating at, at spatial scales, which are very important for agriculture. And they're telling us similar stories. Um, and I think the, if you look at the output across multiple different uh, modeling groups and multiple different regions, that, that uh, our projections are clearly pointing us to a, a world of more of the same, so to speak, uh, of where we are today. I think you know, if, we, if we look at the, the framework behind um, behind all of this, one of the things in climate science that we do is we're trying now to, uh, to detect and, and attribute um, uh, climate change to extreme weather events. So for example, the South African drought, drought fill that I know you experienced, um, you know, how frequent will that likely be in the future? And then, and then do we have a good sense of what the climate change signal was in contributing to that drought. I think our science has gotten much better. Uh, we are now much more able to uh, both detect and to attribute things to climate change. And so some of our work today is really helping us see that. And I think that it's telling us that we have uh, potential is issues in the future. If we don't manage our environments in a better way, we're, we're likely headed to more extremes, whether it be in wine regions or, or urban areas or other places as well. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, in because we are seeing that um, the viticultural suitability is increasing in, in, in many areas that were not in the past suitable for viticulture, like, for example, higher latitudes in Europe or in North America. Uh, my question for the panel is, uh, or my next question is, how do you see the likely emergence of new wine regions in the future? 
And uh, based on this, what will be the impacts on the current wine regions and in the markets of the emergence of these new uh, regions? Uh, Alice, there. Yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a lot to unpack there. Um, obviously, it's a it's a very complex issue. Basically, uh, when when we have a look at a, a wine region, it has certain uh, suitability to climate based on the cultivars from that region and based by on the viticulture that's been practiced in those regions. So a warming climate is going to make regions uh, more or less suitable to different cepages. So um, that will see some varieties grown at more extreme latitudes, higher north in the northern hemisphere and further south in the southern hemisphere. Um, the emergence of the Tasmanian wine industry and um, higher altitude wine industries in Australia are, are areas I could point to in particular. Um, right now I'm working in Cote Roti, France, and actually it's interesting to see because this was very much the, the coldest region in France with an appellation for growing Syrah. And they've actually seen an increase in good seasons based on the warming trend. So um, whereas they had more marginal seasons throughout the 1970s and 80s, throughout the 1990s and 2000s, and then into uh, this, this decade, they're seeing more and more years with consistent fuller flavors and, and more, more consistently good vintages uh, is, is the general trend. I mean, the impact on current wine regions is, is really interesting. Uh, with, in, a, in a situation where all things remain the same, uh, where there's a kind of inertia from grape growers and winemakers, then with the existing cultivars and the existing practice, you are going to see a move out of suitability. But with the, the hindsight, uh, looking back on, on what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years and the ability to, to look into the future, there is the opportunity for, for vineyard managers, uh, for operators and, and winemakers to see what is suitable in warmer climates than where they're currently situated or identify sites within their region or, or potentially other regions where they can continue to express the kind of style of wine that they're wishing to produce and then to uh, adapt viticulture or, or potentially um, change uh, the, the kind of wine style they kind of produce to make sure they can still deliver the market, the, the kind of quality product that they're, they're looking to deliver and, and at the same time respect the, uh, the overall uh, overarching terroir of, of that site or of the site that they're selecting. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and Richard, what's your view uh, of, of this? Yeah, so I'd take Alistair's comments uh, well. Um, certainly, um, there's a strong interest in establishing vineyards in Tasmania. We're talking about uh, Australian viticulture. It tends to be on the southeast and southwestern coasts. Uh, Tasmania is an island further down, further south, um, and is providing a, a much cooler climate. But that exploration of those sites uh, and also, as um, Alistair mentioned, some of the high altitude areas was occurring in, occurring in the early 2000s. And we're starting to see some of the, even some of those newer sites, which are much cooler opportunities, starting to come under pressure as well. But there's also another aspect. We also have an engine driver for uh, the Australian industry um, inland 
And uh, in uh, January 2019, we saw some of those sites, instead of um, counting days over 40 degrees centigrade, we're starting to count them over 45 degrees centigrade, which clearly is not suitable for, um, for quality wine production. For example, one of our major inland districts um, in January 2019 had uh, four days above 45 degrees C. And that's really, really difficult uh, for vineyard production. Um, the region was very, very happy not to see another uh, burst of heat because um, the leaf layers on top of the uh, vines had basically been burnt off in those conditions. And if there'd been another one, there'd be some real issues. So from an Australian perspective, um, recognition in the early 2000s to uh, move into um, uh, higher country or further south. Um, and uh, yes, we're, we're running out of options at this stage and going to have to uh, work, as uh, Alistair suggested, on perhaps looking at uh, varieties more suited to the conditions that we're experiencing at the moment. Thank you. Thank you. And from South Africa, uh, Phil, what's your perspective? Um, yeah, um, we have a lot. We have a lot to watch. Um, you know, I think. Um, I mean, generally, if if people need an index of what they should be worried about, I would say, if you're in a region where your best vintages were your warmest regions, um, or your warmest vintages, you're you're probably headed in the right direction. If your region uh, was characterized by your quote best vintages being your um, the cooler. Uh, seasons, and I think you have something to be concerned about. And I think part of that concern is that um, we can talk about new regions, but you know we're not an extremely portable, uh, easily moved industry, uh, since it takes a while to develop uh, vineyards that <clears throat> are going to give us the age that we like for the styles of wines and characteristics that we're looking for. Also, I think um, we haven't done a lot um, to educate um, consumers to new varieties and uh, particularly new varieties that uh, you know may have uh, different different names things that uh, people aren't accustomed to so we can either we need to move you know find a new home uh, like uh, you know animals that know enough to migrate when uh, the climate gets out of uh, out of their range but uh, I think we need to um, to also make sure we bring the consumers along and um, uh, I just wonder if, uh, just throw a question out for uh, people's consideration, if um, some of our varietal labeled wines actually are want to be a blended wine so that um, we have an opportunity to work with some varieties that may work better in the climates that we're in already uh, with some of our uh, classic uh, varietal labeled wines. So, you know, it's, it's really asking the commercial question as well of, uh, how are we going to uh, how are we going to satisfy uh, the uh, the desires the interests of our, our consumers? Thank you, thank you. We will come. I think we will come back to, to some of these points uh, in a short while. Uh, I think we can move to the to the adaptation to climate change side because we know that climate change is expected to, to change quite fine growth, development, yield, uh, berry attributes, the wine style, typicity, as we have already talked about, and also the perception of the terroir of many traditional viticultural regions. Um, and this will require some adaptation toward the future sustainable uh, or sustainability of uh, wine regions, traditional ones. 
Uh, overall, the adaptation options, we can split them into short-term or long-term measures. The short-term measures are those that typically uh, represent interventions in the vineyards that are applied within a given grapevine growing season. Uh, and on the other hand, we have the long-term measures uh, that imply transformational options or structural changes and are applied consecutively uh, throughout several growing seasons or even before uh, planting a, a vineyard. Um, Phil, uh, considering your vast experience with viticulture in dry climates, namely in South Africa, California, or Israel, among other regions where you have vineyards, from your point of view, uh, which are the most imperative climate change uh, adaptation measures to implement in the near future, taking into account these scenarios? Well, that's a you know it's a personal opinion, I guess, that would put them into some in some sort of hierarchy. But um, you know, one of the one of the things that I see um, that I'm probably most focused on is how important water and water management water. Um, um, you know, we talk a lot about irrigation and irrigation isn't the point, it's water management. Um, when do you put on water and how much and why? And um, is that water gonna be available and is it going to be of, um, of a sufficient quality? So we have quality and quantity issues and then of course the timing and how we use it. Um, this is a kind of a, another comment that would go along with my earlier statement about the phenological cycle of the vine. We know pretty much from a technical standpoint when and how much water we need to apply uh, during the, uh, that, the, the seasonal uh, journey of, of vines uh, into, the, uh, into the production of fruit and wines. Um, I'm going to say we know that, but you know, I, I work in a lot of places where people don't really understand how to apply it. And I think we've missed some basics in the viticultural training um, of some of the people coming out of, uh, out of universities. And, and uh, while it may sound a little harsh, I think it's, it's regionally applied. And particularly in places where we've always had enough water in the past, we didn't really have to worry about it. If you want to put on water, and if it wasn't that uh, wasn't that expensive, and um, and of course I'm talking about um, dry non-summer um, rainfall areas, um, then uh, that was pretty much a I would say a luxury situation that we had with respect to water. And um, one of the things that will bring a focus very very clearly and very quickly is for example, in, the, um, uh, in March of um, 2000, uh, February, March of 2018, which in South Africa, which of course is the, the kind of the latest part of summer as we go into, into autumn, the forecast was that uh, at the rate at which um, South Africans and particularly I'm gonna focus on the Western Cape and uh, particularly on the city of, uh, of Cape Town, um, they were um, advised that there was a, um, a, a in South Africa it's a great for, for terms, and, and they came up with a term they called day zero. And day zero was the forecast date that um, uh, people in the city of uh, Cape Town, and, and particularly the forecast that was 
April the 16th, 2018 was day zero. And day zero involved going to the tap to get a glass of water and opening the tap and no water would come out. <laughs> now, that's a, it's, a pretty, um, it's a pretty sobering uh, kind of thought. And um, uh, the response um, to South Africans to that was, was kind of like, yeah, well, that's other people. It's not really going to be me, uh, Cape Townians and, and people in the, uh, in the Western Cape. Um, and then the, um, the water rationing came. And, um, and so people were um, <clears throat> put on a recommendation uh, later with some, uh, some enforcements. It's hard to enforce when you aren't measuring the quantity of water that goes to a person's tap. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of monitoring uh, available at that time. Um, on a 50 liters per day per person. Now, uh, for non-metric uh, people, um, that's about uh, 13 gallons of water per person per day. And it may seem like a lot if you had to carry it around, uh, but it's very little when it involves all your meals, all your bathing, laundry, washing dishes, and everything else. Uh, 50 liters per day um, goes through the system pretty quickly. So um, at that point, uh, the uh, people in Cape Town really took it seriously and they really got a, a very, very good uh, compliance and, and day zero never appeared. And that was the objective. So, so there's, a, there's, the, there's the reality of measuring it. Now, of course, um, on the vineyard side, I'll have to say that we, we paid a bit of, and agriculture in general, we paid a bit of a price um, because on January 1 of 2018, um, I think that was the date, it was on or around that day. Uh, the tap for uh, people who on uh, distribution systems for uh, water, like a, a water scheme, um, our tap was shut off. It went to zero overnight. And um, that also brings a certain sobriety to your concept of realizing that January 1 is uh, kind of like when we are going through Eurasian and headed into the ripening season. So, so we finished the 2018 season with no additional water beyond what we had stored and, and that wasn't very much. Um, so so I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, when I talk, of, when you ask for priorities, I put water up there really, really very high. And um, we also have planted a lot of vineyards in places that um, really, and developed those vineyards. I'm gonna put those together in the same basket the choices and also how we develop those vineyards um, that uh, need more irrigation than um, we perhaps should really be able to support. And uh, so I'm, I don't wanna go into a lot of depth, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of developing vineyards in places where you can get the roots down deep, uh, you use the soil as a, as a reservoir, you hopefully will uh, be able to replenish that reservoir during the course of, uh, of the rainfall season. So, um, and then just I'll add real quickly this, this sense that I'm kind of, you, you get a, a theme uh, out of, I'm kind of on this, this idea of know what's coming uh, during your growing season. And, um, and then of course, when you're planting new vineyards, choose the sites well and choose the plant material extremely well. Um, you know, I, I still love riparia based stocks in really good soils because people say, well, they don't root deeply. <clears throat> I've worked with uh, vineyards in South Africa in, uh, in decomposed granite <clears throat> where the particular winery was digging uh, an addition to their cellar. And we went into the hillside vineyard and we just removed vines because we weren't sure exactly where all the excavation was gonna end. So we just kept digging into the vineyard and every day you'd see new vines that were 
exposed in their roots and then they fall out of that uh, face where they're mining away and be gone. But I saw a lot of vines that were going down decomposed granite. They were down five meters. They'd go around these big boulders and through cracks in the, in the soil. And, and those are riparian stocks that aren't supposed to do that. Well, it's a lot of it's just management. So the core of that is how to manage, select, site, manage, and, and get those vineyards down deep. So those are, uh, that's a that's a start on my list of priorities, and I think that's enough for right now. Okay, thank you, thank you very much for sharing with us your experience, uh, which is also applicable here in Portugal, because particularly in the southern part of the country, we have similar problems with warm and dry climates. So our viticulture is also subject to similar uh, constraints. Um, uh, my next question is is to Richard. Uh, Richard, uh, taking into account the the recent uh, past fires you you have in uh, you had in Australia, and the resulting damages in vineyards, can you tell us how you are managing these uh, devastating assets? Thanks, Joao. <clears throat> of course, Australia has had fires for a long, long time. We have a, uh, a, a naming system, um, Ash Wednesdays, Black Fridays, but they're now becoming more and more frequent. In terms of challenges to viticulture, it's probably fires in the early 2000s and the, uh, during the, um, uh, the last decade that have uh, started to have some impact on vineyards. And unfortunately, there's very little uh, information on vineyard rem remediation, which is a con serious concern. Another example is the issue of smoke taint, which we, um, uh, the fires in, uh, in the Adelaide Hills last year on the 20th of December, so just on um, uh, summer solstice. Um, and uh, what we learned from that is that we now understand that uh, bushfire smoke will, uh, vines, uh, grapes that are hard and green are susceptible um, to, to smoke taint. And prior to that, we'd, we'd hoped that in fact, they weren't uh, susceptible to smoke taint until Verizon. More importantly, though, if uh, fires are going to increase, we can now uh, we now understand from work this year that uh, you can determine whether you smoke taint damage within four weeks of uh, of that actual fire damage. Your question relates to managing vineyards. Um, unfortunately, we don't have um, much information on that. Um, and so what we're looking to do is to look at uh, what the recovery is and hope to have some answers in 2023 as to the best approach. One of my concerns, for example, is um, how you manage um, um, season, the seasonal vineyard floor management, because uh, one of the conclusions from uh, the fires in the Adelaide Hills was that people would not be uh, uh, using any undervine mulches or um, and you know, basically should they be going to uh, tilling undervine. And of course, this is a disastrous sort of thinking in terms of uh, maintaining soils. I think we're going to need to be thinking about um, seasonal forecasts before we deal with those aspects. So your question is, how are we managing this devastating hazard? Um, we're not at this stage, but we're very rapidly trying to get information to, to, uh, to help vineyard managers uh, remediate vineyards that are, uh, are damaged, and also trying to put together some plans in terms of how you might best uh, recover from a, um, a challenge of fire. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Alice, they also directly affected by fires in Australia. Uh, can you help us understanding how you are facing also this challenge, including the innovative uh, soil regeneration practices that you have been uh, carrying out? 
Uh, in, can you tell us a little more about the, the, the carbon neutral winery concept uh, that you have been developing? Yeah, thanks, Jao. So there's a couple of different questions there. Um, touching on the, the bushfires and the smoke in particular, I mean, Richard made some really great points in the actual remediation uh, and, and sort of solutions to the problem of bushfire smoke in the vineyard are close to non-existent. But from, from my experience, um, it was a steep learning curve for me in, uh, in January and February 2022. But something that's really, really important for grape growers and wine producers is the availability of data and analysis on the vineyard material, uh, particularly grapes approaching the harvest date so that decisions can be made on whether to harvest those grapes, uh, the degree of smoke taint, and then if there are ways to manage the, the smoke taint once the grapes arrive in the vineyard so that the, the winemaker has the ability to make the, the very best product available out of that resource. Because there is a level of smoke taint that is a background level, which is undetectable to, to consumers and doesn't affect the wine. And across a, a vineyard region, uh, it can be really surprising the difference in smoke taint from even one parcel to another, one variety to another. And although, as Richard uh, touched on, there is, uh, there is many stages along the development of grapes in which they can be influenced by smoke, but there is a different influence. So a block of semion right next to a block of sugar have very, very different uh, smoke influences and very different results in in actually how that uh, is going to play out in terms of a finished wine. So giving the the wine producers the information uh, to then make decisions off is extremely important and that's something that the Australian Wine Research Institute was working on very hard across uh, the, the harvest season uh, this year in Australia. Uh, and I'm sure it was a very steep learning curve for them as well with a, a huge amount of sample sent. So um, making sure that information is as timely as possible is extremely important and probably the best short-term strategy for the mitigation of smoke in the vineyard. Moving on to your question about soil. Um, I love the analogy that Phil... Used. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> second part, part two. Um, I loved the analogy that, that Phil made about soil being a sponge. Um, that is a really key part of, of how I view soil in the vineyard. It's, it's not just what, something that the, the vine grows on. It's a part of the, the system uh, that the vine depends on and, and inherent to, to wine and its qualities, uh, as well as the health of the vine. So uh, for me, in the Hunter Valley, for example, um, in, in heatwave conditions and in hot conditions, uh, we have quite sandy, fine soils. Um, what I've aimed to do is to try and increase the amount of uh, organic material, uh, particularly the soil organic carbon, which allows the to, which, which does make the, the vine more resilient to conditions of drought and conditions of extreme heat because there's access to the vines uh, to water stored, stored in the soil. And that can be supplemented by irrigation, but as an overall strategy, having the best water holding capacity in the soil during those periods of drought and, and extreme heat are, are only going to be beneficial. So the way we've tried to achieve that, um, and, and I loved, again, what Richard was saying about soil structure, because it's really important. Um, 
keeping the soil covered uh, and using techniques such as cover cropping to, to build the organic material in the soil. And then to actually try and find beneficial species uh, which can, can stay in the vineyard year round and keep the ground covered stops the soil from drying out. It keeps the structure, it keeps the, uh, the carbon, which allows the soil to act as a much better sponge and allows the vine to have a much more resilient uh, sort of base to work off throughout the season. Um, so uh, I think it's quite important because as, as producers that see any competition for water in, in the vineyard as, as, a, as a negative, but, um, and, and that often leads to a sort of kill everything inside approach with, with weeds and a, a, a bare earth approach, whether it be through um, cultivation or through, through herbicides. But there are a lot of benefits to selecting species uh, and, and running a, a form of agriculture, which um, tries to keep the soil covered and, and tries to replenish um, the soil structure and the soil chemistry to the benefit of the plant. Now, moving on to the carbon neutrality. Uh, carbon neutrality is something that, that I felt really passionate about with uh, our business, because I mean, there's, there's such obvious uh, ways that the, the wines that we create and, and the grapes that we grow are influenced by the climate. Uh, and so uh, we wanted to make sure as, as our business wasn't actually contributing to that problem. Um, so basically the, the essence of carbon neutrality goes through looking at all of your inputs for our entire business. So whether it's the, the bottles, whether it's uh, the uh, electricity that we use in production, whether it's fuel, uh, diesel for the tractors, fertilizers, and trying to reduce that to the smallest amount possible uh, because there will always be uh, emissions. Uh, emissions at some point using the current technologies are unavoidable. So we reduce that to the smallest amount possible. Um, for example, through solar power instead of using grid electricity and from eliminating uh, synthetic fertilizers and replacing it with the system of cover cropping uh, and, and mulching, uh, we can reduce our carbon footprint and then we've reduced our influence on the environment directly uh, and, and we can uh, offset any remaining emissions through sequestration, whether that's on the vineyard site or off the vineyard site. Um, but that, that plays again further into biodiversity, which is something I'm very passionate about and very involved in, but I'm afraid that'll just send us down another rabbit hole. Um, but the, the sequestration of carbon through native biodiversity, through replenishing native biodiversity uh, can be used as a, a integrated pest management system as well, which I think shouldn't be overlooked in, in reducing pesticides, but that's, that's another can of worms. Uh, Another question. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, great. Uh, next question. Uh, because we all know that you, 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 uh, you have a deep knowledge of many wine regions in the world, uh, including uh, not only Oregon, but also the Portuguese Douro Valley, uh, which are regions with clearly different terroirs. Uh, and I would like to know what's your view on the future of these two wine regions? Well, believe it or not, I actually think that there's uh, a lot of similarities, even though there's a lot of differences. Um, uh, you know, both uh, the Portuguese wine growing regions and, and Western Oregon 
uh, wine growing regions are all in summer dry climates. And we know that the vast majority of our observations and models tell us that summer dry climates will likely get even drier during the summer, which means the, the prolonged uh, dry, dry season will probably uh, expand and also become less um, consistent from year to year. But we also know that uh, increasing heat stress is likely going to be a problem. So if we look at, you know, it could be just really anywhere. It could be Chile, it could be Australia, it could be parts of the Mediterranean. But from Portugal to, uh, from, to Oregon, it's really all about, I think, about where you're starting from. In, in Portugal, you have a very diverse uh, array of indigenous varieties that have had a long history there. In Oregon, we're largely in the north, cool climate varieties, and in the south, slightly warmer climate varieties. But cool climate varieties encountering greater drought stress and heat stress is a different story than indigenous varieties encountering more heat stress and drought stress. And so I think that both regions have the same challenges, but, but how to respond to that is a, is a real difference. The, the, the landscapes, of course, like in the Douro or even in the Alentejo, there's very little uh, natural water resources that can be used for irrigation. So you have to develop a more resilient plant system and a more resilient vineyard uh, overall. But the same thing has to happen within cool climate production here and maybe in Northern Oregon where uh, varieties such as Pinot Noir and maybe Chardonnay, Pinot Gris are very uh, susceptible to heat stress events. And these heat stress events, and I think Phil and maybe everybody's mentioned it a little bit to this point, heat stress events, especially in the later part of the seasons can actually do something that is contrary to all of this earlier maturity. It can actually slow down maturity and force us to deal with uh, a vine that is stopped uh, sugar creation and, and now is in a process where we're trying to uh, figure out what the flavor profiles and aromatic profiles might be from it where the vine is just not producing anymore. And so we need to really understand kind of how to best uh, uh, put in adaption measures that allow us to kind of stem those kind of impacts, whether they be heat events early in the season or late in the season. I think it's really important for us to look at both of those kind of uh, uh, issues. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Uh, my last question is about the, the information uh, on climate change that uh, sometimes we, we have some criticism about the efficiency uh, in, the, in the transfer, the transfer, transference of the, of the information from researchers from the universities to farmers and winemakers. Uh, so I would like to also to place this question to the panel. What should be improved in the communication channels between science and stakeholders? Uh, I, I would start with Alice there. Uh, I don't know if you want to comment on this. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, the, I touched earlier on uh, in Australia, we have the Australian Wine Research Institute. Um, and I think that they, they do act as, for industry, uh, for viticulturalists and winemakers as a really effective uh, communicator between research and, and practical uh, methodology that you can use in the vineyard. So, um, I mean, they're, they're also conducting research that, 
they communicate uh, regarding these issues and the changing climate and, and how we can address them. So it has to be said that for Australian uh, producers that they, they have a lot of resources there that they can access. When it comes more to the side of talking to other stakeholders, if that's uh, the market, whether that's uh, consumers and, um, and and other people within the, the wine sort of uh, supply chain, uh, I think that wine itself is actually quite a good starting point to talk about climate because people inherently understand that wine is a product of climate. We, we, we have as, an, as a wine product, a product which is uniquely communicated to the world in saying this is a sense of place, this is the soil, this is the, the rain and the sunshine and, the, and the, this is a picture of a growing season. And therefore, when you talk to people about a changing climate, uh, they really have a really clear picture of how it influences wine. It's a really good parallel that people can can draw between the the changing climate, which can sometimes seem a little bit abstract, um, unless you've we've got obviously wires at your doorstep like we've had in this year in the United States and Australia. But it can seem kind of abstract, and people don't quite know how it it really relates. And and the way that it is manifested in the wine industry is so clear, and people have such a, a a good understanding of how uh, climate is is related to wine that I believe that just it, it's almost up to us to to use this uh, to to show people the influence of climate change. So maybe they uh, maybe they do something uh, in their own lives to make a small difference. Thank you, thank you, Richard. Uh, look, I think um, uh, one of the motivations for grape growers and winemakers is the sheer pressure we're facing at the present moment. Um, we certainly have a lot of information available from researchers and uh, basically grape growers and winemakers are avaricious in their need to access what's happening. Uh, without getting too political, one of our clear issues, particularly in Australia, is to try and get our politicians to actually understand that we do have an uh, ongoing issue and to uh, at least provide the ability for us to um, continue to expand knowledge to be able to mitigate um, the issues that are coming, coming at us. I think I should stop there. Phil? <laughs> uh, well, Richard sort of dropped, dropped in <laughs> the lap of the American uh, contingency, uh, 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 the failure to uh, recognize that uh, actually there is such a thing as climate change. So uh, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid that uh, so we don't light up the, uh, the internet with- uh, Well done. Uh, critiques. Um, I, I would just say quickly that, um, um, you know, we as human beings are extremely good at gathering data, but uh, what we really need to do is take data and, um, and one of the things that Greg does so well is take data and make that knowledge consumable, you know, so that people can see it, they can see what the trends are, and, and he brings a he brings it home and anyone who doesn't uh, currently receive and or read and study um, Greg's monthly uh, um, uh, uh, newsletter uh, really needs to get signed up for it because uh, he's taking a lot of information, a lot of data <laughs> and putting it into a, a package that people can, uh, can actually use. The other thing that we have here and we're, we're living through this uh, it, it can, you know, it's a contemporary issue is that we're making wines 
that are capturing the situation, the, the environmental conditions that we're in every year. And we're putting those ageable wines in our cellar. And, um, and we get to, we're, we're all gonna have an opportunity to, to go back into our cellar and taste through these vintages. And, you know, we, uh, we reflect on uh, what was that season like and so forth. But, you know, with some information behind it, um, we have a really good um, kind of laboratory to tell us what the effects have been. Um, now, how well we can forecast those to the future may be another, another issue, but uh, I'm looking at um, tasting through these environmental uh, evolutions that we're going through. And uh, I love it with our own wines in South Africa. <clears throat> um, we, uh, we're a fairly young, uh, a fairly young business, but uh, we can sit down at any given date and and we have all the older, the original wines that we made. And, and so we could taste through 15 years of, uh, uh, or greater than that now, um, vintages of uh, the wines and how the vineyards and the climate and the weather, the weather during the, uh, uh, the season has, uh, has influenced those wines. So uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time. So uh, I guess we're in that, um, in that uh, blessed uh, curse of uh, may you live in interesting times. I think you could say uh, we're living through uh, times that are where the climate's actually changing. So it's a, it's a, it's a rare, a rare not, uh, not that I'm enjoying it so much, but uh, at least uh, uh, making as many observations as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Greg? Well, I, I'm, I'm probably going to uh, light up the internet, so I'll just go ahead and do it. Richard, I mean, you're really spot on, I think. I think we need to get the political rhetoric out of this equation. Um, it doesn't do us any good, whether it's just broad-based political party rhetoric or, or ideologies that develop over time. You know, science does not operate the way political rhetoric does. And we have done a pretty good job, I think, of, of doing the work we need to do. Now, scientists aren't the best at communicating. That's pretty clear. But I think as time has gone on, especially as we've moved into the, this century, the academia is training scientists to be much better communicators, to understand how to share information and, and um, be very proactive with the, uh, the world around us. However, the political systems uh, are really getting in the way. And I, and I would also say that I think some of our social media systems are also getting in the way. Uh, we have a tendency to be operating on this immediate gratification world uh, with everything that we do with our fingers and our thumbs. And the issue really comes down to is, is that science does not operate as fast as a Facebook post does. And we have no way of being able to tell what is real and what is not. So for science to be better communicators, to get really good information into, into whether it's a viticulturist hands or somebody in, in a health system, we need to be able to have people understand the fact that, that science, is, science is a slow moving process and that we are telling uh, a story that is supposed to be free from political push. And, and I think once we can do that, we have a better chance of, of, of end users being much more engaged with what we do as a, as a, as a science. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Uh, I, I was just checking the, some questions we have in our chat. And we have here, I think, a very interesting question from Antonio Grasso. 
Um, the question is, is it possible to know early enough when adaptation in a place is no more possible because all adaptation options stop working or because it's just so costly to adapt that viability is done? <laughs> I don't um, know. You, you are free to, to reply. <laughs> Well, it's a big question. Well, can I, can I hop in? I mean, um, I, I think it's about, and I think we're trying to understand uh, the issues that uh, we have available to, to deal with uh, heat. For example, in Australia, um, we have completely changed our canopy management in the sense of it is now more shading. Um, I shudder to think that it was less than 15 years ago that we were talking about uh, advising people to do um, leaf removal to open up bunches. Um, what we're learning in relation to uh, mitigating heat is the importance of overnight uh, irrigation, even short-term pulse irrigations to try and mitigate temperatures. Uh, and the other aspect that I touched on that Alistair also reacted to is, is ensuring that you've at least got some aspect of soil biota or cover for your soil to try and uh, mitigate heat. But in terms of knowing early enough uh, and the like, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, the extremes we're seeing and particularly in the Adelaide Hills, we continuously seem to be beating uh, the highest temperatures. We continuously seem to be uh, going into drier and drier conditions. I'm not sure at what point you make the decision that um, uh, enough and you have to stop at that point. Yeah, if, if I could build on what Richard said there, um, it's gonna be different for, for each region and, and the challenges that are addressed there. Um, you know, speaking from the Hunter Valley, which is uh, quite quite a warm region to begin with, um, we have seen early adoption of mitigation strategies uh, and adaptation strategies that other producers uh, around Australia have have taken advantage of since. And I I believe that we're still a very long way away from using all of the the tools in the toolkit, uh, but it does depend on. The, the ability to address climate change because, I mean, we, we are like at, at its base, we are talking about farmers trying to predict a changing mm. climate, which is going to be different in each region. So adaptation will be expensive. There will be expenses from ad adapting to climate change. And there will be people that will be pushed over the financial line. Uh, there's no question about it, uh, but the ability to, uh, to the best of our ability, reduce our impact on the environment to mitigate climate change so that we don't go to extreme warming will essentially render some of those, some of those arguments obsolete. Um, but you know, I can rest, reassure some people in cooler climates than, than where I'm from that there, there are a lot of tools in the toolkit and, and we're still making wines and, and we're still, um, you know, in, in the Hunter Valley, we're still uh, very happy with the quality that we can create for the price. So uh, let there be hope for everyone else. <laughs> I think Greg had a, had a comment. Uh, I, you know, I was just... Um... I know who asked this question and I uh, respect him quite a bit because he's looked at this issue a lot. Can we understand what our adaptive potential is? And you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the answers are here. I do know that all of us, whatever industry we may be in, we have risk 
that we have to deal with. And each one of us has a different adversity to risk. And in our operations, we have to understand that. You can clearly take um, you know, math and, and go through the process and understanding what your risk potentials are, but you need to develop your own thresholds and how those thresholds impact each individual are gonna be based upon largely economics, uh, but potentially other uh, broad-based issues that you need to consider. It's just that whether we're talking about uh, hail events, drought frequency, extreme weather events that potentially produce fire-related uh, dangers like we're just having, we can come up with risk-related measures for that, but each one of us has to be able to, within our operations, develop what does that mean to us relative to us continuing. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Maybe i just add a, a quick thought. Um, one of the things that, that you can see, um, and I'm not a climatologist, but it's really clear is that when things are, and, and this is just in life, this is the way events go, um, but I see it on a seasonal basis is when we're going through these, these longer term changes, the short term amplitude uh, differences from year to year are really great. And I think we've talked, everyone in the panel has talked about that in their own experiences about having these radically different rainfall seasons and so forth. If you smooth that all out over, you know, Greg would probably say about 15,000 year cycles, you really see some very good uh, trends. We don't have that kind of time frame to deal with. So I think at that point, it then basically comes, you have a whole group of people that are early adopters. And there are the people who would say, hey, uh, the wind's blowing a different direction. I need to change the sails on my boat uh, so that I'm actually can keep moving forward. Or in this particular case, the climate is actually. Uh, and then you get people oftentimes who are say, well, I'll only believe it when you show it to me. You know, I want to see the results before I make a change. And, and those people are probably going to be the ones that uh, get consumed, they're the, they're the slow movers. They're the ones that are gonna get eaten by the, the tiger chasing them because they didn't change quickly enough. So um, I would say that it's, and Greg said it very well, it's personal uh, uh, acceptance of, of risk levels. But I can tell you, for example, insurance companies, they write um, fire insurance on homes in the state of California have adapted very, very quickly. Uh, we have a number of them that are just leaving the state. They're just saying, no, thank you. When your yeah. policy expires, we're not going to renew it. Mm -hmm. That's it, full stop. Uh, and then, you know, then the question is: Is there another insurer who's going to come in? And that that doesn't take a lot of forward vision. That's happening right now. Thank you, Phil. Uh, one question for Richard and Alice: There, uh, do you see Kangaroo Island becoming a more promising viticultural location now? Look, that's a very ironic item. I'm hoping you can see this. Can you see the map there? No, unfortunately not. Uh, no, damn it. What I'm trying to show is a map of Kangaroo Island. Uh, the fire scar from, uh, from uh, last year has taken almost half the island out. Um, so that's a quite an ironic question. Um, yes, the potential is huge. Um, however, um, it has been highly susceptible to fire and also has issues in relation to uh, water availability. Um, those are key questions and I guess it comes back to, as, as Phil was saying, it depends on your appetite for risk. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Do you want to say anything, Alistair? 
Yeah, I mean, when the name Kangaroo Island came up, that that was the first thing that did jump to mind. It's an unfortunate um, case to choose, and uh, people there had an absolute horrible time during the fires. One of the worst cases in Australia. Um, I guess a point to take away from your question, though, is that, I mean, it, it is for South Australia at, at a, uh, a further south latitude, which, which does have its advantages when we're talking about the warming climate. Also, really importantly, it has uh, the influence of the ocean. So more maritime uh, growing regions, more maritime areas will have a buffering effect from the ocean. And they will see less of a climate uh, shift than areas which are uh, more continental. So for example, Margaret River hasn't really seen a huge uh, heating trend. I, I believe it's about neutral over the last 10 or 15 years, whereas other parts of Australia have seen quite a drastic warming trend. So that maritime influence can make a huge difference on the influence of the changing climate as, as the ocean is, is warming at, at a much slower pace than, than the air and, and gives that buffering effect. So there is a, a grain to take out of that, but unfortunately for Kangaroo Island and, and the people who live there and the people who grow grapes there, um, it's, it's not a great situation at the moment. Thank you, Alice, there. Uh, we have also questions here regarding extreme events. Uh, for example, we have a question uh, um, saying studies indicate increase of extreme events in South America, like heavy rainfall, hail and droughts. In long term, is it possible wine production be unfeasible in Argentina, Chile and Brazil? I don't know who wants to... <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think my response earlier comes into uh, play here as well. Argentina, uh, a wonderful uh, growing region, uh, very dry, uh, gets most of its rainfall during the summer through thunderstorm events, which also bring hail. So hail is a very uh, 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 important extreme event in Argentina. But again, it comes down to risk. If you're in a, in, a, in a zone within Mendoza that has a, a, a certain risk frequency of hail events, you need to know what that is. And you need to know whether uh, your business can sustain a certain uh, frequency of those events uh, over time, because a warmer world likely will produce more intense thunderstorms, which means more hail. And so if you have risk today, that risk is only gonna get greater in the future. Thank you, Greg. Uh, we have also two questions from Kevin Chambers. Uh, they are related. Uh, one is how does a grower manage for acute extreme events like hail, fire, frost, heat, spikes, etc.? And the other question is: It seems that uh, it seems these radical weather extremes are uh, far uh, are a far greater risk than long-term climate change. Maybe Greg can can help us. Uh, with this discussion? Well, I, you know, I think I've always um, really viewed long-term climate change to agriculture, any form of agriculture, being something that we're very adaptable to. I mean, I, I don't think you can be in, in an agribusiness and not be able to adapt to small incremental changes over time. Uh, the end point of those changes can always be different, but, but I think we're, we can manage that to some degree. Extreme events are just such a different uh, uh, scenario. 
Um, when we look at what happened in, in Oregon and, and in California and Washington in the past uh, uh, two weeks, we experienced an event that we only really have one or two in our entire data record. We don't even, we don't have enough to go on to understand what the frequency of the return interval of this extreme event was and how we potentially can look at it both today and into the future. So it's, it's, it's really hard and I, I, I do agree that, that extreme events are a much, much greater long-term risk depending on which extreme events are most prevalent and are likely to occur more often in your region. Thank you, Greg. So uh, I think um, um, well, we have a last question from Catherine Kidman. What's the potential adaptability of grapevines? Is there a potential for varieties to adapt over time to a changing environment? Can say cats learn to live in a can we say that we can live or learn to live in extreme conditions? <laughs> it's again about uh, extremes. I don't know who wants to, to reply. We are running out of time. Um, Look, I, I, I might just stick my foot in the pool there. I mean, for example, um, what, one of the issues that I mentioned earlier is the fact that um, with um, vintage coming form further forward, we're looking at warmer ripening. One potential, um, it's, it's not an adaptation. Adaptation is going to take too long in terms of the genetic component, but one potential is um, changing the time of pruning to try and delay uh, ripening periods to get back to those cooler areas. But I think the, the practicality of that in terms of a business that um, uh, is requiring income returns and the ability to ensure that that vineyard uh, continues to function in the future, I'm not sure that's an option. A quick comment that, um, of course, the outcome, the outcome of this endeavor that we're all involved isn't the grapes, it's the wine. And um, Sure, we can ad adapt, uh, but I think the wines are going to be different. Uh, Greg said it very well. You uh, you have a different outcome, um, and I can tell you that Cabernet Sauvignon grown in a warmer, shorter climate um, duration era area with warmer nights is going to be a completely different uh, Cabernet. And so, I mean, that that may sound. Um, um, gratuitously simple in our approach, but sure, um, we can deal with we can deal with climate. Just are the wines going to be what we want to produce? Thank you, Phil. Uh, so uh, I would I would uh, pass the words to Martin. Yes, I'm back. Thank you very much. It was an amazing debate. I really enjoyed listening to each and every one of you. I probably am not going to do what I generally do because we're way past our time. I generally choose various messages from what you say, but I have to say that as Alizer said that uh, wine is a product of climate. I think, uh, Phil, thank you so much for sharing the experience you had firsthand of what happened in, happening in South Africa. I think probably many, many of us have not experienced the this concept of not having water coming out of the tap. And I think that is, as that couldn't be more in your backyard. Of course, you all have, ex have experienced the other uh, extreme weather events we've, to uh, we've talked about, but that one couldn't be more extreme. It couldn't be more vital to life. 
uh, Greg, you said that science more than ever is uh, being able to predict more and more accurately what is going to happen in terms of extreme weather events. So I hope that tells us to our common people like me that are not uh, scientists, that science is accurate in regards to climate change and in regards to what is happening in the world. Richard, thank you for bringing out the political um, issue, whether or not it's on the table. It's not about color of politics or anything. It's a fact. Um, and uh, well, I could use many more. What I can recommend to everyone out there is to go through this talk because there's so much information in it and there's so many uh, knowledge and uh, mitigation techniques or adaptation uh, that you can use. And, and hopefully this has been useful. Thank you, Joan, for guiding all these gentlemen and also sharing your expertise on the matter. Thank you very much. We didn't uh, we didn't have you asking questions to the other to the other uh, guests. Um, well, we, you I will we'll continue recording and you can continue talking and we'll just edit. But we'll have to leave uh, our YouTube session for now. Thank you very much, everyone that was listening, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did.